millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to the second uncovered episode of the Progressive Britain podcast with Frankie Grant and Joseph Holland. It's party conference season. We're all meant to be roaming the streets of Liverpool once again for Labour Party conference last weekend. Sadly, as you know, that didn't happen. We had to make do with Zoom and Labour Connected. We did ask Progress members about their best memories or most embarrassing stories from conference. Abdi reminded us of Emily Thornbury's infamous opening speech about having flashbacks from her youth, which did take us all by surprise a bit. And another submission from a former Progress staffer, no less, who we will ensure remains anonymous, recounted the time when they accidentally got an Uber all the way back to Corrigan from Brighton after a conference night out. But the real talk of the town at the moment is Patrick Maguire and Gabriel Pogram's new book left out. They talk about the plottings going on at conference, the NEC meeting to get rid of Tom Watson, and the late night mischiefs and brawlings at the Grand Hotel. We had the pleasure of speaking to Patrick and Gabriel this week about their recent book that landed with a bang this summer, we talked about the book, the motivations, the events and the sources behind it. So give it a listen. So Patrick and Gabriel, thank you so much for coming on the Progressive Britain podcast. Thank you for having us. Um, so you've had a bit of a, a grilling with uh, Navarre already, so we thought now it's our turn. Um, and we want to just put a quick disclaimer in um, for our listeners um, that obviously progress is mentioned quite thoroughly throughout the book, um, but me and Joseph are new to progress. Um, so we weren't sort of involved in uh, the heavy labour of a lot of the stuff referred to. Um, so we're trying to take a sort of semi-impartial reading of Left Out. Um, so to kickstart us off, uh, Patrick and Gabriel, uh, you were both reporting on these issues throughout the past five years. Um, we wanted to ask you what were your motivations for actually sitting down and writing this book and putting these sort of thoughts and interviews to writing uh, in one document well i mean frankly i think that part of our motivation was i mean it was purely journalistic we didn't feel like the corbyn years had been well chronicled um it's unusual to have a political project that reaches the ascendancy which gains power and which is nevertheless represented so poorly in the mainstream media and which isn't necessarily understood or depicted uh, with the level of detail accorded to past leaderships within Labour and 
and within the Tory party. And I don't think we wanted to write this book because anybody thinks we're representatives of, the, of, of Corbyn Easters or Corbyn himself. But we did feel like we had thorough levels of access ranging from Lotto, that is the leader of the opposition's office, to the Parliamentary Labour Party and Southside. And we were also encouraged by my political editor at the Sunday Times, Tim Shipman, to do it. Um, my mum was also lobbying for it for months. So basically a combination of people saying we should do it and our belief that uh, it, it, we could do it and that it deserved to be done um, led to us writing it and we started in, in around January. And um, what's the reaction been since you've since you've published the book? Um, you've had a lot of praise, I know, but I think there's also been some not so nice things said about it and about you guys um, since since publishing it. So how, how's how's the reaction been, and how do you, how do you feel about it? I mean, we've had um, uh, obviously we were serialised in the Times and the Sunday Times um, before the book uh, itself was released, and obviously um, our. Uh, employers have their own stance on uh, the Corbyn years and as such the um, extracts were always going to be perhaps the least edifying for Corbynism and obviously we, we attracted a lot of heat because people assumed we'd written a, a one-sided hatchet job and then uh, we had the very pleasant experience of when the book coming out people who had previously dismissed us saying well actually you know there is a lot in this book um, for everybody um, and you know we still you know we're still getting heat from the the extremes of um you know people who uh think we were too soft on corbyn and corbynism and people who think we were far too hard and that we've written a, an extended gossip column um which i think is a vindication of our approach um to give everybody a a fair hearing to try and interrogate the stances people took on their own terms and and fundamentally also we we're reporters we're not um, you know, we've both sort of written political commentary, but we're, 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 we're both primarily reporters and kind of push analysts of politics. You know, it's not for us to, you know, draw sweeping conclusions about the Corbyn project. I mean, we do in the end, but fundamentally our aim was to say this is what happened and this is why the people involved behaved in the way they did in, in their own words and as other people at the time perceived it. So, um I think, and I think that approach is, you know, regardless of w- whether you, um, you know, like the players involved or um, believe that, you know, that we are um, the best people to tell this story. I think most people who've read the book in good faith have come away from it thinking it's a fair and balanced account, even if they have gone into the book not necessarily thinking they'd want to read a book that was fair to. Um, the opposite side of the argument to them. So, you know, obviously, when you write anything about the Labour Party, there's a fair degree of heat, some of it um, personalised, but I'm a great believer in turning off notifications for people who don't follow you and trying trying to ignore the bad faith criticism. And boy, have we had a fair amount of that. But pretty heartened by the response to um, to the book in, in, in general. Yeah, you mentioned there about sort of personalised attack and criticisms, and we know that... Um, that has been sort of commonplace in the Labour Party after uh, over the last few years. Um, do do you think that this experience has sort of given you a bit more empathy for those people in the Labour Party who have come under heat and and sort of received unwarranted abuse over the last few years? Sorry, you mean? Do you think the criticism we've got for the book has has made us sympathetic with people in Labour who've received criticism as, as politicians? 
yeah politicians and also members as well the sort of the sort of nasty atmosphere i guess we've seen in within the labor party over the few years of of members sort of attacking each other and and yeah i mean i think i think that um one thing which the reaction has affirmed indeed one thing which the research of the book has affirmed is the fact that there are a lot of people within the labor party that have irreconcilable perceptions of reality itself and i think that that's not news to anybody who's been to a CLP meeting or who knows anything about the Labour Party. But, you know, there are people who really believe in their hearts that Tom Watson was a, a great man, uh, a moral man who sacrificed a lot to defend the dignity of the Jewish people and save the Labour Party from itself under Corbyn. And any of the people who manifestly believe that he's a, a sociopath, uh, a liar, a fraud, and a guy who deliberately fanned the flames of a confected row over race in order to advance his own factional agenda. And I, I mean, I think that it, it, you know, we certainly feel like uh, you know, talk about we talk about the kind of polarized wings of the party, and that's also been reflected in the response, where you know, some people have um, sort of dismissed the kind of factual basis of things for which we have categorical evidence and others have used that same evidence as the basis of wider arguments about the state of politics. I remember we had these texts, in fact, from Neil Coyle, um, the Bermondsey MP, in which he sent to Corbyn late at night uh, pr- pretty aggressive texts, basically saying that he didn't think he was up to the job, that he was weaker than a mosquito on the hide of an elephant, and that he'd failed the country, was failing the party. Uh, and when we put this out, we were trying to attest to the fact that whether you, whether you like or loathe Corbyn, clearly the certain sections of the PLP were pretty unforgiving towards him personally. Um, you know, we were clearly reflecting that in disseminating the screenshots of the text exchanges that they had. And some people responded on the ultra left saying, uh, you do realise that it's coil that comes off badly from this, you know, the Mur- Murdoch hacks your ploy to defame Corbyn has backfired over here, uh, to which we said, no, no, no we're, we're fully aware that it's the M- that it's not Corbyn uh, which comes across poorly as a result of this. But, you know, I think part of the joy of the book is showing people that we're not we're not peddling one person's narrative and, um, and that we're trying to trying to offer goodie bags to all. Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think you did do a good job of sort of trying to balance all those those different um, viewpoints. And I know you've, you've had interviews with multiple people within the Labour Party. Um, there's been some criticism about um, some people maybe coming off a bit too lightly in, in Left Out, though. Would you sort of agree that maybe some figures such as John McDonnell uh, sort of take an easy ride in the book? Um, or would you sort of dispute that? Uh, I would dispute it. Because primarily this criticism is that we, um, you know, stems from people saying, you know, you don't mention that John McDonnell, you know, is still president of the LRC and, you know, he's on Zoom calls with Tony Greenstein and, um, uh, and Jackie Walker. Um, or, you know, that, that we don't, um, you know, inflect every passage of, about Seamus Mill by suggesting he's um, an anti-Semite. I mean, you know, and look, obviously this debate inspires very, very strong feelings and there'll be people who draw, you know, completely valid and legitimate um, 
moral conclusions about the actors in the book. I mean, that's what the book is there for. I mean, as I said, you know, we're not writing a philosophical tome about the the ethics of being involved in British politics. I mean, you know, we say in the prologue that it's not an attempt to sort of apportion blame or settle factional scores, although many people came into their interviews with us trying to do just that. It's um, an account of what happened as recalled and as told by the people who were there. And um, look, there's a paperback to come and I'm the, the story over anti-Semitism isn't finished. Um, and I'm sure John and also John McDonald's reversion to his habits of old will, I'm sure, be featured in that. But the, the, the reason people think John McDonald comes out of this book well, um, and we don't hold any brief for John McDonald. John McDonald is absolutely furious about this book. Um, so it's quite amusing that people um, say, you know, we have um, written the, the world according to John McDonald is because by any conventional standard of British politics, and John McDonald was praised for this at the time by as unlikely people as Peter Mandelson, or not quite praised by Peter Mandelson, but people like Peter Mandelson and others, um, also others in, the, others in the People's Vote campaign, acknowledged McDonald was a good strategist and, uh, and tactician, and he was willing to make the compromises the rest of his ideological, ideological fellow travellers wouldn't. It's for those reasons that McDonald if people think he's come out of the book well, comes out well, because he's the closest thing to a conventional politician in the book. Um, and if that means, if, if that's people's idea of coming across lightly, then I'm sorry we didn't write a book in which we um, concluded that everybody in the Corbyn project was morally beyond the pale. I mean, lots of people might think that, but ultimately our, the intention of writing this book was to say what happened, not to say, um, not to cast aspersions on people's character. I mean, frankly, if you want... Uh, grim reflections on people's character most people write in their own words or in their own testimonies so i mean you know we're firm believers in the journalistic um mantra of show don't tell and i think despite people's best intentions in a lot of cases um people have shown that they behave badly in this period so i don't this idea that um because we don't cover every cough and spit of what john mcdonald said at fringe meetings over the past 30 years that we've somehow um given him a free pass um, just because, you know, he made compromises, the rest of the project wouldn't. And indeed, we do conclude that the, the things that people think John McDonnell did well actually played a role in destroying the cohesiveness of the Corbyn project and, and its failures. Um, and arguably on anti-Semitism, regardless of John McDonnell's own stances and associations, his willingness to break definitively with Corbyn so publicly and repeatedly drove Corbyn further into um, a sort of self-defensive stance, which meant the the, pro the the problem was never going to be resolved. So, you know, and we do say that explicitly uh, at the end of the book. So that's a sort of long-winded answer of saying, no, I don't think we've been too light at anyone, and especially not John McDonnell. <laughs> yeah, I completely see your argument there. Um, people have also said that um, the book sort of focused more on the predominantly white men within the Corbyn project. Um, do you think that that is just simply reflective of, of those surrounding um, Corbyn at the time? Um, so, I mean, I, I, I think we're, we're not beyond... Um, we, we don't want to claim that we exist outside the structures of society and that we are unimpeachable um reporters and people uh, so we we take constructive criticism uh we take criticism as well and uh there has been some of that especially from the people's vote campaign so you know we take that in good faith i 
would also lean on what you've alluded to there, which is the fact that as it happened, a lot of the people surrounding Corbyn were like Corbyn himself, white men. And we set out in the prologue that we are seeking to write, we're not seeking to write a history of the labor movement. We're, we're not trying to give a voice to the voiceless. We're, we're writing a story about the last few years through the eyes of the people within Corbyn's office and the people without Corbyn's office who mattered and wielded power within the party. So, yeah, that means that you reflect the demographics of the p- people involved. And obviously, Seamus Milne and James Schneider went to the same school and university as each other. And, pe- you know, people people have kind of pillory Corbyn for promoting a certain class of middle-class bloke. But right, right or wrongly, those those are the people that we were, we were left to deal with. And we tried to reflect their voices. I mean, I also think that one of the most significant characters in the book, indeed a woman who looms arguably larger over the story than anybody, is Carrie Murphy, who uh, is a working class woman from Glasgow. And I'm not saying that that exonerates us for um, for mis- you know, my- minor errors or oversights elsewhere, but I, I-, I don't think that we um, downplayed her role. And uh, she indeed is arguably... Um, you know, w- w- one of the great characters of the book. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think we've demurred or shied away at all from reflecting her in all of her all of her glory uh, d- d- or not, depending on your perspective. No, I think, I mean, if the if the book was a fiction, she would she would be the heroine. Certainly that's 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 what I got from from uh, from reading it. And uh, in the acknowledgements, you you guys mentioned your a few of your sources, the, the people who are willing to go on record for you. And like you say, the 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 people you speak to, um, they determine the story that you get. They determine the narrative that you're going to have to write down. So in hindsight, do you think there's um, there's an area, there's there's a group, there's there's a few individuals who maybe you wanted to, to have spoken to that would have given you a, a better perspective that would have allowed you to write a book that made the, the book you, you wanted to write? Or do you think that you spoke to everyone you wanted to speak to and you're happy with the information you've got um, because obviously your sources dictate necessarily dictate the perspective you have, but do you feel as if maybe your sources limited you or or blinded you in any way? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. And you're absolutely right to say the structural problem with books of this nature is that, you know, neither Gabriel nor I were in the room for any of the encounters or conversations we, um, we mentioned. So we, uh, naturally have to put a lot of trust in um, our sources. Now, the way we combated that um, was to speak as many people as possible, not to limit our sources to any one faction, not to come into the to the writing with um, any given, you know, we cast whatever opinions we had on any given source aside, which is where, where I think this thing about um, not casting aspersions on people's character as journalists is important. Because if you dismiss anyone as beyond the pale um, as your starting premise, then you risk um, you risk you know disregarding important testimony or being less inclined to speak to people who can naturally um, you know correct narratives or ensure you're telling the story from every possible angle, impossible though it might be for some people to hear stories told from that angle. Um, and your question about sources is a, is also a good one. Um, you know, hard to answer without uh, 
betraying who we did speak to and, you know, for various reasons, didn't want to uh, go on the record. Um, I think you can judge who probably didn't speak to us from the ferocity of some public reactions. Um, but basically, I think we, I think more or less we covered um, almost every perspective we would want to cover. And naturally, we're keen going forward, uh, you know, as we continue to report on this and as we update it for the paperback to perhaps add a bit of uh, texture where, um, you know, this book was written in four months. So we, we spoke to, you know, more than 100 people, but we didn't necessarily speak to, you know, everybody who was, um, everybody who was necessarily in the room. We covered, as Gabriel said, the the perspectives of all the key players. Um, we sort of buttressed everything with as much documentary evidence as possible. You'll see that the, the text is peppered with WhatsApps and emails and memos that people were kind and indiscreet enough to leak to us. Um, but I, I say, you know, we, we just we, 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 we just want to speak to more people who were there. Um, and that's a very illustrative thing about this process. Oh, sorry, one of the educations we had during this process is, um, you know, Everybody from um, an administrative level, you know, the, the person who works in facilities um, at Southside is in some ways just as useful to you as Carrie Murphy. Um, obviously, there are degrees of usefulness and, and the nature of what they provide is um, is is very different. But, uh, you know, we, we if there's if there's any one sort, I wouldn't say there was any one source we uh, desperate to speak to. I mean, maybe there are a few, but we can't necessarily betray um, betray that publicly. Um, but I'd say, you know, we we are always keen and we'll be keen going forward to speak to anybody who was there. I mean, that's the only criteria that matters. Someone who was there, someone who can speak with authority on things we as reporters didn't see and can provide us evidence for things that happens and can, and can tell us things that have not yet come to light publicly. I mean, that's the whole point of this process. Yeah, so you've spoken to people on, on both sides of the party, um, and that's that's very obvious from from the extent of of information you have to write this book. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion um, about the Deck Chair Realignment Society uh, in Left Out and the discourse discourse around the book. Um, will you sort of put a moral judgment on those people and their actions? And do you believe sort of in their heart of hearts that they were doing what they thought was right at the time? I think that they, like everybody, um, including most people in Corbyn's team, I should stress, misinterpreted or the, the polls or, I mean, more, more fairly interpreted the polls according to what they were saying at the time, uh, certainly at the outset of the 2017 election campaign, which is that Corbyn was destined for defeat. Now, in, in, in that context, certain people said, well, we're, the only option is for us to hopefully buttress certain Labour MPs who are likely to help lead the party on afterwards. Um, we do need to preserve something of the PLP, um, even though much of it looks like it will be reduced to rubble. I mean, they were predicting a result more akin to that which eventually Corbyn did lead the party to in 2019 than that which it ended up with. And you're saying, I mean, were they all acting in good faith? Were they all genuinely doing what they thought was right? Um, I mean, I, I think for the most part, yes. I mean, I think that it doesn't that won't that won't mitigate for many Corbynistas the fact that they were being actively insubordinate by funneling resources 
to certain MPs uh, without the knowledge or oversight of people in Corbyn's team or Corbyn himself, uh, that, that they will say that you know, Corbyn was always going to summon this popularity and summon this groundswell of grassroots support when he was given a fair hearing by the media. As the polls changed, as national opinion changed, they should have been taking the fight to the Tories. They shouldn't have been funneling money to defensive seats. And they'll say, you know, who on earth, what what, what, what on earth did Patrick Hennigan think he was doing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they, I think they, they, you know, the people involved clearly thought they were doing something reasonable. And um, I don't think we, I don't think we've ever suggested, I don't think anybody has really suggested that, um, who, who was involved, suggested that it was done to frustrate Corbyn or, um, or, or damage the party, prevent them from securing power. It was based on a, as it happens, um, false uh, or, or faulty um, perception of the electorate. I was just going to say, also, if the people involved in this plan um, didn't now think they were doing the right thing, we wouldn't be able to tell you that their WhatsApp group was called the Deck Chair Realignment Society, um, exactly who they were pitching to, um, uh, you know, what their leaflet said. Fundamentally, um, everybody in this book thought they were doing the right thing at any one time, including the people at Ergon House. You know, I think it's fair to say people who worked, most people who worked in Ergon House, if not all of them, are pretty proud of it. Because looking at, I mean, looking at the Ergon House, um, the, the parts of the book where you talk about Ergon House and then fast forwarding all the way to the end to the penultimate chapter about the 2019 election, the depiction of Ergon House as a kind of clandestine parallel campaign, um, it, it definitely paints it in, in a somewhat negative light. And that's the way that, that people have, a lot of people have um, have taken it. But actually what happened in 2019 when there was no countervailing force, when there was no Patrick Kennegan, there was no Ergon House to um, advise on how the election should be fought um, offensively or defensively. And there was, like I say, no, no mitigating presence. And it was simply Corbyn and Corbyn's, Corbyn's people um, determining where the, where, the, where the funds were going, where the, where the resources were going, where the attention was. That's when it fell apart in 2019. So talk to me a bit about how you feel... Um, hearing what, what the narrative is around Ergon House and around 2017 and actually the reality of talking to your sources and realising what a mess 2019 was. Um, do, you see there's, there's a, do you see there's a little bit of dissonance there in the way that people are, people are um, viewing the, the comparisons between the two elections? Well, I, 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 think that's, I think you're kind of comparing apples and oranges over there because in 2017, Labour had a swing of around nine and a half so the election basically just unfolded in a different way to that which people anticipated that it would. And the reason that Labour captured new seats and held on to existing seats was not because of Ergen House. Most of the people who were defended as part of Ergen House comfortably retained their seats, uh, Tom Watson among them. The, you know, the, the fact that then Labour did poorly in 2019 whether the campaign should have been more defensive then um, is an interesting question. And indeed, arguably, it should have been. There was certainly a sense within the project, though, that this was the last this was the last chance for Corbyn to gain power, um, even if the even if the arithmetic, even if the polls suggested that Labour should fight a defensive campaign, even if it was established that Corbyn was heading into the election, has the most unpopular leader of the opposition on record. It was a political imperative 
that they did go for power. And also because of the mistakes of 2017, they were never going to be able to justify to themselves doing what Hennigan had advised by fighting a defensive campaign. Um, I think at the outset of 2019, Labour had a list of around 66 offensive seats, 33 defensive seats. This was meant to pave their way to a parliamentary majority. Then, despite their abiding belief that different broadcasting rules um, and Corbyn fighting a campaign on domestic anti-austerity issues would see the numbers change, um, that that, that didn't happen. And then uh, as time went on, on a kind of improvisational daily basis, you'd see certain seats being added to the defensive list. But ultimately, as we know, it was far too little too late. And Labour never managed to do what it did in 2017, in 2019, which was transcend Brexit. I mean, what one could argue, I'm sympathetic to the view that by 2019, it was not possible to transcend Brexit. Because Whereas in 2017, Theresa May fought an election on the false pretense that she needed to strengthen her hand in Brussels, when in brackets, she already had a parliamentary majority and therefore had authority in the negotiations. By 2019, the nation did need some kind of release, be that a people's vote or a hard Brexit. And Corbyn thought that he could basically produce what Carrie Murphy characterised as a difficult second album but a kind of variation on the theme of the manifesto of 2017 and use that uh, to try and rise above or sidestep Brexit. And, and, and it didn't work. And they only shifted resources to defensive seats way too late. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Right. So we've talked about um, sort of the 2017-2019 elections, but looking at the the whole period of the Corbyn project right from 2015, um, would you say that Lotto uh, and Corbyn, the people around him, were consistently in denial about the problem of anti-Semitism? Um, so do, do you think that, that that changed throughout 
those four years, four or five years, or, or do you think that it was sort of a constant within the party um, and within people around Corbyn? And how um, would you say that it affected us in those 2017, 2019 elections? Um, it's a good question. I think um, one thing that's important to say is that the, the sort of tension between Labour and the mainstream of the British Jewish community, obviously, you know, we're talking several magnitudes, um, orders of magnitudes difference here, um, didn't begin with Corbyn. It began, um, you know, well, you can trace you know, it to anyone, but sort of, you know, it's a lot of it had to do um you know th th there was tension between ed miliband and the sort of mainstream of the um of the jewish community particularly um or the sort of communal bodies of the of the, of the jewish community um you know especially in the wake of um you know the stances ed miliband took on on, on palestine or, or similar I, I i can't remember what year it was but there was a a striking moment i think at a board of deputies dinner where um you know that uh, miliband had recorded a a video message and he was booed so it's important to say that this problem of mistrust was in train before corbynism obviously um it, you know the, the the sort of increase in complaints and um the problems attributed to the sort of perhaps anti-imperialist worldview of people like corbyn and those around him um specifically began in 2015 and that's when the you get talk of you know labor you know, people very sincerely saying that a Labour government would be an existential threat to the Jewish community. You know, that wouldn't have happened under Miliband, regardless of the, regardless of the problems um, Labour had during that period. Um, but to answer your question about um, people being in denial and how the problem changed, um, one of the great sort of unspoken things about reporting on Labour and anti-Semitism during this period um, that we tried to draw out in the book is that you can talk all you like at both sides of the argument do about complaints procedures and um you know this social media post and this nec candidate and that council by-election candidate um, and all of those complaints are valid and obviously for a political party to have a disciplinary system that didn't deal with those complaints um you know expeditiously and with sufficient um, treat them with sufficient gravity, as many people perceive it to be the case, is obviously not a sustainable place for a political project to be in, as most people around Corbyn admitted. But the great sort of unspoken thing is, why were we writing about those things? Because there was a perception that Labour under Corbyn wasn't strong on anti-Semitism. Why did that perception exist? And why, why, why was there that vacuum that were, were filled with process stories, um, which we don't really do that much of in the book? You know, we, we don't, we, we're not talking about... You know, we don't delve into sort of Palestine live or, you know, the suspension of Glyn Secker. You know, we, we sort of sort of mentioned that in passing. Um, it's because Jeremy Corbyn didn't come out and ever put a lid on the issue. He never came out for all his condemnations of anti-Semitism, which were usually um, suffixed with and all forms of racism. He never came out and gave the speech those around him wanted him to give which was, would be to say, I acknowledge we have a problem. I acknowledge that in the eyes of many people, part of the problem is me. Um, and here is an unequivocal statement of support for, um, you know, the Israel's right to exist um, or whatever. And so that, that was the problem. And as the problem, as the, you know, very diligent researchers uncovered archive footage and, you know, early day motions that, again, suggested 
a big part of the problem was Corbyn and his stances. Historically, Corbyn, you know, retreated into himself. He got very defensive. You know, um, this has almost become a joke for some parts of the Labour Party. But he does, you know, being an anti-racist is a core part of his political identity. It's arguably the core part of his political identity. So for Corbyn to be accused of one, at best being tolerant of racism, or at worst being a racist himself, was an incredible personal, um, had a huge personal impact on him. And people might say, well, you know, that's all very well and good. Look at the the Jewish community that was traumatised under his leadership. I mean, but this is a key part of understanding why Labour couldn't deal with this problem. It's because Corbyn, you know, himself, as much as he would periodically acknowledge the problem in the in, as aides around him say, couldn't quite admit, you know, it, you know, they say, you know, he couldn't really process the... This, his centrality to the to the problem, and then obviously you have aides around him, like Andrew Murray says to us on the record. You know, he openly questioned whether Corbyn was capable of the same empathy he was with other minority communities as he was with British Jews. So I don't think many, I don't think many people. It's not a question of denial, because everybody around Corbyn and Corbyn himself actually acknowledged that the Labour Party had a problem with anti-Semitism. It's whether they understood it was the problem, the same problem that the Jewish community and the rest of the Labour Party understood it to be. And the problem with that, as I said, is because it was so it was a personal problem with Jeremy Corbyn and his his political worldview. And to you know, to a certain extent, those are people around him like like Seamus Milne, although as we write in the book, Seamus Milne, you know, frequently acknowledged the problem and um despite the many aspersions people cast in his character, at least, you know, at least said internally, um, you know, we have a problem here. Um, but it's whether people, whether Corbyn specifically, his worldview, be it on geopolitics or the more specific question of, um, of Britain's Jewish community itself, was able to intellectually and emotionally process and take the steps that were necessary um, to deal with it. And I think, you know, most people reading the book and indeed most people around Corbyn would conclude that for personal and political reasons, the answer was no. So, I mean, why, you know, who was in denial? I don't think anyone was in denial. I just think Corbyn and some of those around him weren't actually capable of understanding the problem as other people saw it. And that kind of passiveness, uh, which which Corbyn exemplified on anti-Semitism, or at least in, in his public, um, you know, his, his refusal to kind of publicly apologise for it on multiple occasions. And you see the frustration come out of various different scenes in the book from, from those around him and his ineptitude in dealing with that. I think that also extends in the book to Russia and, and to a kind of general... A lack of of, of strong uh, leadership, especially, or also in in instances, campaigning or throughout the um, the three years that the book covers. For example, the trip to MI six, um, the 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 meeting two weeks before the twenty nineteen election, where slogans are changed and 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 um, decisions and focus of the of the campaign are changed. Were you talking to sources during the research of the book were you at all um shocked and while keeping your kind of journalistic neutrality were you shocked at the kind of lack of um the lack of control and the lack of focus that there was and i think to be frank with you the naivety at some time some of the craziest scenes just seemed to me for a for a um for the the opposition party in the uk um, running against a, a conservative government a party that was all over the place and had been it seemed as if there were just kind of multiple attempts um, by Corbyn and those around him to to keep both sides as kind of unhinged and crazy as each other. So just from your perspective, speaking to your sources, were you at any point hearing these stories firsthand or reading these WhatsApp messages? Were you shocked at the kind of um, some of the craziest, some of the craziest aspects of things you found out? 
I think we were shocked, and I think we were shocked by both the incompetence of the leader's office and that operation, as well as the amazing incompetence of the people who were trying to destroy it. Um, I think a lot of people kind of do a lot of projection when it comes to Tom Watson, uh, who I was alluding to earlier. They thought he was the the saviour of the moderates, that he must have things under control. When TIG, the breakaway group, formed Tom Watson, launched his future Britain group, which was a kind of talking chop for the PLP, people assumed that he had a plan which he was executing um, and that depending on circumstances, he would either stay and fight and continue to frustrate Corbyn's leadership, or if certain boxes were ticked, he might lead a great exodus of people from the party, etc., etc. As it happens, practically everybody you speak to who knew Watson and worked with him at this time says that he had no plan. He often didn't turn up to any C meetings. And he turned up to Brexit subcommittee meetings only when he was spoiling for a fight and heard that there would be something politically interesting being discussed. Um, in, indeed, we, we report that Keir Starmer knew that Watson only attended a particular event because he thought that there would be a decisive discussion about Labour's customs union policy, which was precisely why Starmer actually uh, sealed the deal on the so-called A customs union plan earlier at a, uh, at, at, at a regional Labour event uh, well outside of Westminster. So I think that we were we're interested and surprised by the lack of coordination. You've got Chuka saying one thing, doing another one moment. You've got Tom raising everybody's hopes and then not turning up to events uh, the next. And as a result, they facilitated and enabled uh, the epic dysfunction of Corbyn's office and you allude to the meetings with MI5 this for people who haven't read the book is a story of how uh, one of Corbyn's well Corbyn's private secretary uh, attended meetings with the heads of Britain's security agencies despite having for months been denied security clearance apparently in part due to the fact that she had a brother who had been a denizen of extremist Islamist circles online and, um, and, and you know, you had Corbyn who thought this was institutional Islamophobia and guilt by association on behalf of the of MI5. And then you had Carrie Murphy, Shami Chakrabarti, Andrew Murray, Amy Jackson, John McDonnell. I mean, basically everybody else thought that it was insane that Corbyn had taken the political risk of bringing this woman to a high stakes meeting with the head of MI5 and latterly MI6, where I think she challenged him on the alleged Islamophobia uh, of the spooks. And, um, I mean, really, you know, there was there were a number of attempts by John McDonnell and others within Corbyn HQ to professionalise the way the operation worked. Um, John McDonnell repeatedly tried to bring Bob Kerslake, the former head of the Home Civil Service, in to, um, to, to, to rewire the way things function. But actually, the coup of 2016 established what many people attest to as having been a siege mentality. Um, People just weren't open to outside ideas or voices because it had been them against the world, the media and the PLP in 2016. Um, And so I I think that the mentality 
and personnel within Lotto. I mean, yeah, we, we, we were shocked by the dysfunction of the operation and the extent to which others enabled them. Um, looking now to the future um, for our final question for you, uh, we've heard this week Keir's speech um, where he's arguably for the first time putting a real stamp on what he stands for, talking about those family values and sort of aspirational politics. We've also seen uh, the release of what I think is a fantastic promotional video for the Labour Party, sort of, again, uttering those same values. Uh, and the last chapter of the book looks to the future, looks to the sort of next chapter for the party. Where do you think Keir is? Um, what, do you, what do you make of his leadership so far? And if, you, if you'd like to add to that, any sort of final words that you'd like to put to record? Um, well, I think we, 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 we um, you know, one of our, what we, what we sort of reveal about Keir Starmer's leadership campaign is that it was run by people um, you know, namely um, Morgan McSweeney, uh, you know, who um, you know, for much of the Corbyn years was in charge of Labour together um, and will probably be familiar to listeners of this um, of this podcast, perhaps perhaps personally. Um, you know, the, the point of Starmer's leadership for many people, uh, that campaign for many people was to sideline Corbynism from the Labour leadership without uh, a Corbynite, or rather, an electorate that had elected Corbyn twice, um, would realise. And I think if you've seen, um, you know, all you need to do is look at the public pronouncements from the Labour Party this week. The three key episodes: Starmer's speech, um, the party political broadcast, and the vote on the overseas operations bill um, about um, sort of historical uh, allegations against British troops yesterday, which saw three members of the socialist campaign group sat from the front bench for voting against it. Um, I think on that count, Keir is clearly succeeding um, and is clearly fulfilling the aspirations of of those uh, those around him and, and those who led the campaign in that respect. Um, obviously, the great unspoken thing is, um, you know, the, the, the people around Starmer say... You know, we are all about rebuilding trust at that this point, trust with the electorate, you know, repairing the damage done by Labour's brand, uh, to Labour's brand rather, um, in the Corbyn years. And obviously the, the polling appears to bear that out. Um, and the key question for both sides of the debate is what does a Keir Starmer policy platform look like? Will there be such a thing as Starmerism as a, um, as a sort of ideology rather than just a, a programme for... Um, remaking the Labour Party. On, on, on that, the jury is still out. Um, and I don't think we'll have an answer soon. But if you're purely judging Starmer and his first um, however many days or months by um, the intentions and objectives of the people who ran that campaign, you can. it's hard to argue anything other than it's a success in their eyes. Well, I have to say that from the first minute I picked up the book, I really couldn't I couldn't put it down. I had to kind of read it straight through. Um, and a lot of people are calling it the political book of the year and it's clearly done incredibly well. And uh, congratulations to both of you on that. Um, and we appreciate your time today and, and for both of you coming and speaking to us so honestly. So thank you. Thank you so much for having us on. We really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having us. To round off this episode, our MVP is, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or as she is better known simply by her initials, RBG. 
the Supreme Court judge and feminist icon, sadly passed away last week. In the US, people gathered together to mourn and also to throw their support behind RBG's dying wish, which she dictated to her granddaughter shortly before her death as the only thing she wanted to add to her public record. My most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. But Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump and crucially Mitt Romney have other ideas. Romney had held America in suspense over the weekend about whether he would give his backing to McConnell and Trump to move ahead with filling the vacancy on the court. Progressive stateside were holding out hope that Romney would follow Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski in withholding his blessing and keeping the vacancy open until after the election. Lindsey Graham, who had previously categorically promised not to fill a vacancy 2020, turned back on his word immediately over the weekend. That left Romney as the power broker. Republicans can afford three defections maximum and still get Trump's nominee through the Senate. Without Romney's dissent, the maths are solid for Republicans and insurmountable for Democrats. On Tuesday, he announced his support for a nominee and effectively paved the way for Trump to appoint his third Supreme Court judge and give Republicans a 6-3 majority on the most powerful court in the country. With a vote on the Affordable Care Act coming up soon after the election and several cases brought by Conservatives over the past four years seeking to get the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, both outcomes, the termination of Obamacare and the reversal of abortion rights, are possible, if not probable, in the foreseeable future. What this will do to America's already diminishing status as a cultural and political world leader depends, of course, on the coming election and the extent to which a deeply conservative Supreme Court manifests its power in tearing down liberal legal precedents. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.